Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny. Uh, for those of you who I have not met, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and it's uh, good to be with you. Uh, it's good to see you. If you're a guest or a visitor, I'd love to uh, meet you after the service. If you have time to stick around, I'd love to greet you formally um, because we are glad that you are with us as we come to God's Word. Um, just last week, we began uh, a new series, a short series, taking up the Lord's Prayer. Um, so this prayer that many of us are very familiar with, probably many of us learned it as young children, even if we didn't grow up in the church, we probably learned to say it um, from a very young age. This very simple prayer, but this prayer that is deeply profound. Um, we started last week by considering the very beginning of it, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we continue this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6. You can also follow along in your order of service. The passage is printed there. Now, the uh, famous newswoman, Barbara Walters, once said that, although I don't go to church or synagogue, I do pray every time I get on a plane. I automatically do it. Now, what Barbara Walters is expressing is something that is universal to us all, that when we feel out of control, when we find ourselves in a situation or a circumstance where we cannot handle it, when, when we feel like we need some help that we cannot provide ourselves, we instinctively look to someone or something that could help us. And for many of us, whether we are religious or not, that help comes in the form of prayer. But Barbara Walters' posture to prayer is, is actually something that, that we should consider. You see, as she comes to God, as she doesn't go to synagogue, she doesn't go to church, she's not a religious person, and yet she comes to prayer asking, requesting God to give her what she desires. She's wanting her needs to be met. In essence, what she is longing for is for God's will to bend to hers. I think that oftentimes that's how we approach God, right? Here are my needs, here are my desires, here are my longings. Please satisfy them. Please fix this problem. Do, do what I desire. Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with us asking for needs, asking for the longings of our hearts. In fact, next week, we're going to talk about that in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, what it is that we need for life. But before we get there we come to this portion of this prayer, which isn't primarily concerned with God bending his will to us. In fact, it's not concerned with that at all. In fact, if anything, as we ask God to fulfill this petition, what we are asking is that our wills would be bent to his. And so let's read Matthew 6. I'm going to read the beginning of verse 9. I know it's not printed there. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God, our King, we do ask that as we come to this, your word, that you would lead us in the way that we are to go, that you would show us where we are not coming in conformity to your word, to your truth, and that you would bend us, that you would shape us, that you would form us into the image of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, many of you know that one of our elders, Tobias, is a woodworker. 
He's more than just a woodworker. Tobias has this amazing wood shop out at his house, and that's because Tobias is a trained cabinet maker, and now he, he makes furniture. And so when I first moved here, when my family and I first came here, and I was talking to Tobias, and he told me that he makes furniture, I was very intrigued. I was intrigued because his particular specialty, what he loves to make, are Windsor back chairs. Now, I didn't know what a Windsor back chair was. I'd seen them. I just didn't know that that's what they were called. But I was intrigued by this because all I knew about building chairs was what I had seen in Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot. (laughs) Some of you have seen this. Right, Mel Gibson, this retired army officer, he's now spending his retirement making rocking chairs or attempting to make rocking chairs. And there's this scene where he finishes off his chair, he sets it on the ground, he sits in it, he gently leans back and he begins to rock. He's feeling very proud of himself because he's put together this beautiful chair and then crash. (laughs) It splinters under his weight and he's falling to the ground, and in his anger, he picks up the pieces of broken chair, and he casts them into the corner into a stack of other broken chairs. And Tobias assured me that that is not the way you make chairs. (laughs) And I can assure you that his wood shop is not filled in one corner with broken rockers. But when he told me he made chairs, I was intrigued. And so my family and I, we went out to his house, and I got to see his workshop, and we went back there. And what I was most intrigued by was how he bends the chair. So in a Windsor back, it's, the back has, is one piece of wood, and it's bent perfectly. It's just one piece of wood. It's not multiple pieces kind of stuck together and then cut. It's one piece of wood. And, and it intrigued me because, kids, you know, if you go in your backyard, like after the storm comes this afternoon, and you find a tree limb or a twig laying on the ground, and if it's thick enough to hold the weight of a person, you can try to bend it, but no matter how strong you are, it won't bend. Or maybe you'll find another little twig on the ground, and and maybe this one's a little thinner. It's a little more dried out, and so you try to bend it, and when you bend it, it snaps in half. Well, it didn't hold its shape. Or or now, now you know what to do. You'll find a little twig that's just fallen, and you bend it, and now it looks like it's holding its shape, but as soon as you let go, what happens? It comes flapping back. It won't hold its shape. And so I was intrigued. Like, how does he bend it? Like, what kind of magical powers does Tobias have to be able to do this? And so he showed me. It's not magic at all. (laughs) He has this little tube set up, this pipe, and he sticks the piece of wood in the pipe. And at one end, he has a kettle. It's filled with water. And as the water is boiling, the steam from the kettle fills the pipe, and it surrounds the piece of wood. And he leaves it there for a time. And the steam from the water is just permeating the different wood fibers. And he just leaves it. And over the course of time, he'll come back to it. We did. We came back to it. And he said, Penny, we'll we'll be able to bend it. It'll take a little bit of effort, a little bit of work, but it will bend in just the right form that we want. And sure enough, we came back. We pulled it out. He stuck it in its form, and he slowly bent it. And the wood bent. You see, what was amazing was that in the hands of this chair maker, he could bend the wood into any shape he wanted. And in this prayer, that's what we're asking God to do in our lives and in this world. 
You see, to continue the illustration, the analogy, you see, this world and our lives is like that piece of wood. And this prayer is the steam that surrounds the wood and permeates its fibers so that in the hands of the one that we are praying to, our wills and our world would be bent into conformity to his will. I mean, did you hear it, what we said? Your kingdom come, not my kingdom. God, your will be done, not my will. We are asking God to bend our hearts and our minds, to bend our wills so that they come into conformity with his. Now, I do have to tell you, when I think about this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, I often run to your kingdom come to this world. Right? Like, your kingdom needs to come to my neighborhood and to my kids' schools and to, to this city and to this nation and to this land. That your kingdom come, your will be done is all about your kingdom coming out there. <laughs> and it is out there. That is what we're asking. But we're also asking that his kingdom would come and his will would be done in us as well. That our hearts and our minds, that our very souls would be transformed. That we are asking God to do a radical bending of our wills to come into conformity to his. What we are asking is that wherever God's kingdom isn't being reflected in this world and in our lives, that he would eradicate it. And he would replace it with his kingdom. We're asking for a radical transformation to take place. It's what we're saying when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Okay, now if this is the kingdom that we're asking for, we have to know what this kingdom looks like. We have to know how we even gain entry to the kingdom. And so that's what I want us to take up first. How do we even enter into this kingdom that we are asking to come? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 1, it's through repentance. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes into the little town of Galilee. John the Baptist has already been arrested. And Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. And he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying is that the time that we have been waiting for, for the inauguration of the kingdom, that it has come in Christ. And so he's calling his people to repent and believe. See, repentance is acknowledging the fact that, that this world is not conformed to the will of God, that it doesn't look like it does in heaven, right? I mean, that, that request, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, implies that conformity, the conformity that's taking place in heaven isn't taking place in this world. It's calling for repentance. And we know that this world doesn't look like heaven, right? Right? I mean, we just look around and we, we see all the ways in which it's not in conformity to God's kingdom. Deception and theft, murder and prejudice, abuse of power, the despising of the weak. I mean, all of these things reflect the need for God's will to be done on earth. And so in one sense, when we say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done, this, this prayer is evangelistic in one sense. Because we are asking that God's kingdom would come to the hearts and to the minds of those who are not reflecting his kingdom, who are outside of his people. We are asking that a transformation would take place in their lives, 
that the world would embrace the truth of God's kingdom. We are praying for God's kingdom to come to bear on our neighbors and our co-workers and our classmates. That they would be brought into conformity with God's will. But it's not just repentance. Jesus said, repent and believe. Repent and believe. That we must believe in the gospel, and the gospel at its most fundamental is the good news that Christ has come to deal with the sin and the effects of the fall, the sin that resides in my heart, but also the effects of the fall that are being played out in this earth. Romans 8 tells us that the creation itself is groaning for the revelation of the sons of men. That it is experiencing the curse that Adam brought upon it when Adam first rebelled. And so when we ask your kingdom come, your will be done, we are asking for the gospel to which we believe that Jesus would come and through his death and resurrection that he would bring his kingdom not just to our lives but to this world. That's what the gospel is. That Christ is dealing with sin and the effects of the fall as far as the curse is found. That Jesus through his death and resurrection Through his death and resurrection, he's dealing with our sin. And he is taking us from the kingdom of darkness, and he's bringing us into the kingdom of light. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Entry into this kingdom is through repentance and belief, but but we continue to repent and believe, don't we? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we look at this world, and we don't have to look very far to see reflections of kingdoms that are antithetical to God's kingdom, right? I can just look in the mirror, and I see the ways that my own life doesn't reflect God's kingdom, and I need to repent and believe again. Not repent and believe to enter into the kingdom, but repent and believe because I know that though the kingdom has been inaugurated, it has come, there is a not yet still to God's kingdom, Right? This is what theologians call the already and the not yet. It has begun, but there is a day in which we are waiting for it to come in full. And so we repent and we believe. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying that this message would come to us as well as to others. But we're not only asking for God's kingdom to come in a spiritual way, like a transformation of our hearts. We are asking for that, but we're asking for something even more than that. We're asking that our lives would be lived in conformity to God's will. You see, the kingdom comes with an ethic. That belief in the gospel means that the the kingdom has ethical consequences for us. So, for instance, in Galatians chapter 2, you remember there, uh, Paul recounts how he had to confront Peter, right? There was a time previous where Peter uh, was, was spending time with Gentile believers. Remember, the kingdom of God was inaugurated, and it was transforming what everybody knew about the people of God. Nations and Gentiles are being brought into it. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. They're being welcomed into the kingdom of God, and so Peter's spending time with these Gentile believers, right? He's hanging out with them. He's fellowshipping with them. He's eating with them, but then the circumcision party, these Jewish believers show up, And Peter's not feeling so comfortable about hanging out with these Gentiles anymore. And so even though they are part of God's people, he stops fellowshipping with them. 
He stops eating with them. He stops spending time with them. And he only spends time now with the Jewish believers, the circumcision party. And do you remember what, Pete, what Paul said? He said that Peter's behavior, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. What, Pete, what Paul was saying was that the gospel is not simply about us being restored to right relationship with God, being renewed. It is that. It begins there, but that the gospel has ethical consequences for our lives. That we are to live out the kingdom of the gospel of Christ. That there's an ethic that comes with it. And what is that ethic? It's love. That's where the ethic of the kingdom begins. It's with love. Do you remember in Matthew 22, Jesus said that the first and greatest commandment is that we shall love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. That that is our primary motivation is to love the Lord our God. But then in John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you hear what Jesus is saying is the defining characteristic of the people of God? It's love. It's love for one another. John 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's saying that y'all need to love one another. That that's how they will know that you are my disciples. That you have truly repented and believe and are living out the kingdom that you love. I mean, Paul is getting at that in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't he? When he starts talking about all those different gifts, tongues and prophecies and understanding mysteries... And he says that I can have all of these, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with those things. He doesn't say those things aren't important. He says what is of greatest importance is love. And so we love our Lord. We love one another. We love the people of God. But we also love our neighbor. Do you remember Jesus said, in Matthew 22, the first and greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God, and the second is like it, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And Paul said that the whole of the law is fulfilled in one word, that we love our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? Well, Jesus makes it perfectly clear in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not everyone is our brother, not everyone is our sister, but everyone is our neighbor. The person who lives next door to us, that is our neighbor. In the cubicle beside us, that is our neighbor. The children in our classrooms, that is our neighbor. That we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And so when we ask for God's kingdom will to be done in this earth, what we are asking is that love would be poured out in our lives and that we would live exemplary lives of love towards others. Because the truth is, is that if we are not characterized by love, we are not living God's kingdom ethic. We're to love. Now listen, love doesn't mean anything goes. It's how our culture defines love, right? If you love someone, you're not going to tell them that they're wrong. Uh, whew, right? Some of you are like, man, I love telling people when they're wrong, right? But uh, that may not be love either, by the way. <laughs> No, but love doesn't mean anything goes. 
Love doesn't mean unconditional affirmation of every thought, word, and deed. That's not love. Love says you're not living in accord with the gospel. Love says you're not reflecting God's kingdom. I mean, it was out of love that Paul confronted Peter and say, said you were being a hypocrite. It's out of love that God shows us our sin. And believe it or not, when our spouse tells us that those words that we said were biting and hurtful and ungracious, that's love. It's love for us to hear the ways in which we are not walking in line with the gospel, the ways in which we are not pursuing God's kingdom. Love doesn't mean anything goes. Love means that we are going to pursue that which reflects God's kingdom. And so that means that we are going to pursue what is right and what is just. I mean, it is out of love that we are going to resist and work against those things contrary to God's kingdom. It's out of love that we're going to say things like the killing of the unborn and the abuse of the innocent and racial injustice and sexual immorality, and the preying on the weak, and using power for your own gain at the expense of others, it is out of love that we're going to say that those have no place in God's kingdom. It's out of love that we're not going to participate with non-kingdom ways of living. And it's out of love that we're going to promote truth and goodness. And out of love, we're going to welcome people into our homes, And it's out of love that we're going to die to our own preferences for the sake of our brother and for the sake of the gospel going out. God's kingdom ethic is one of love. And so we do this because we have been loved. I mean, 1 John tells us that. We love not because we first loved, but because Christ first loved us. I mean, we were those who were spiritually poor and weak. We were those who were needy and ignored. We were those who were rejected and dying. And it was out of the love that Christ shows for his people that his kingdom has come. And so that is why we live as kingdom people of love, because we have experienced that kingdom love. That love that told us not to remain in our sins, but to turn from it. That love that said to pursue what is right and good and just. And he did. That's why we are people of love. That's the ethic of the kingdom. And I have to tell you, friends, that there are times where we see glimpses of it, right? I see glimpses of it in y'all. The way that you guys love one another, is, it's, it, sometimes it feels remarkable. It, it's, it's amazing to me. The ways that I see some of you coming around those who are in need and are in pain, the ways that I see some of you coming and mourning with those who are mourning and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, who, who aren't just coming and saying, this person needs to be reached out to, but you're going and reaching out to them. I mean, you are showing that love. And it's beautiful. We see glimpses of it in one another, and we see glimpses of it at times in this world. But, but I have to be honest, there oftentimes feels as though these glimpses of love are few and far between, right? I mean, because we do look at the world, and it doesn't feel like God's kingdom is being bent. 
It doesn't feel like the world is being bent towards God's kingdom, right? It feels like the, the kingdom that was inaugurated with Jesus and that was beginning to be bent, that it feels like sometimes it's straightening, that it's unbending, doesn't it? When we see relationships strained, when we see children turning away from parents, when we see death and we see marginalization, we see all these things that have no part of God's kingdom. Doesn't it feel like the bend is becoming unbent? You know what's amazing is that when, uh, when we returned to Tobias's shop, forget what we did. We went, I think we went and got lunch and played bocce or something in his yard, and then we returned and, and the water had all dried up. And he took the, the piece of uh, wood, right? It had, it had been in the form, and, and the wood had dried. It had set over the course of a few hours, and he started to remove the, the form that it was set in. And, and the, the form was released, and, and he grabbed it by one hand, by one end of this piece of wood, and he held it up, and, and lo and behold, it was bent. It was amazing. And it, it, it didn't straighten. And an hour or two later, it was still bent. Like, it's a miracle. It was still bent. And when he stuck it into the, the chair and connected it to the seat, it remained bent. And as far as I know, it's still bent to this day. Because, because it stayed in the form in which the chairmaker made it. it, it stays bent for a lifetime. And you see, the kingdom of God is like that. You see, there is a bend that is beginning that will finish when Jesus returns, that not yet. And the bend that God is doing in this world to bend our hearts and our minds in this world itself into conformity with his will, that bend that he is doing, the extent of that kingdom coming is for eternity. It never ends. It doesn't come flopping back. It doesn't straighten. I mean, that's the extent of the kingdom. It is for eternity. That's what we say when we profess our faith with the Nicene Creed. We say of Jesus, he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. Y'all, that's not wishful thinking. That is biblical truth. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says that you are going to have a son. You're going to have a son, and his name will be Jesus. And Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There will be no end to his kingdom. It will last forever. It means that God's kingdom, Christ's rule, will cover every part of this world that his will will extend to every corner of this world, that in heaven above and the earth below, his reign will know no end. It will continue on for eternity. That's what Revelation chapter 11 tells us. John has this beautiful vision of the kingdom to come, and he says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and his reign, he shall reign forever. And ever. That is a glorious thought, y'all. It has a glorious thought. Every kingdom of this earth, 
Every nation that has risen, it will one day fade away, but the kingdom of our Lord Jesus will never fade away. Forever and ever, it is eternal. The not yet that we wait for will one day come when God's kingdom of love will reign. When wills and desires will come into perfect conformity with his because we will all gladly bend our knee and profess with our lips that Christ is Lord. His kingdom will not just be in part, it will now be in full. And so those, those glimpses will now become full reality. That's all we will see. Can you imagine? No more death or disease. No more sickness or sorrow. No more weeping or war. Y'all, they will be replaced with light and love and life. That is the kingdom that awaits us. It is the kingdom that we have been brought into. By repenting and believing in Christ is the kingdom that we live out of today by living with an ethic of love and is the kingdom where we will live as God's subjects for all of eternity. And when we say your kingdom come, your will be done, that is what we are longing for. That is what we're asking God to do, not just in the distant future, but we're asking him to start doing it now. That we would have glimpses of it, that we would experience it, and that one day it would come in full forever and ever. It's what we ask our Lord to do every time we pray this prayer. And so let's ask him to do it again. Our God and our Father, we do pray that you would not hasten the day, but that you would send our Lord Jesus to establish, to finish the work that he has already begun. That he would finish the kingdom work that has been inaugurated, that it would come in full consummation, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, but until you come, that you would give us a vision of that day and that you would help us to live as people who repent and believe, people who love you and one another. Do this, we pray. And hear us as we join our voices together and pray the prayer your son taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.